in a manner of speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 31, August 2020, Foreign Language Accents. Well, hi there, this is Paul, and welcome to my latest podcast. First, a big, big thank you to all who've made the launch of my new edition of my book such a success, Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen, Deluxe Streaming Edition. It's been a huge success. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all those instructors who immediately adopted it as the textbook for your dialect courses in universities. I think people really appreciate that I've put every one of the 27 dialect manuals that I publish in this latest edition. So it's really perhaps uh, the final edition that will be required which is why we call it Deluxe, 27 Different Accents and Dialects. And uh, it's much leaner and uh, slimmer without the CDs bound into the back of the book, available simply as streaming audio from from our website, which allowed me to price the book so much more economically. So it's bigger, better and cheaper. It's available both on Palmyre Dialect Services and from Amazon.com. I'm glad to see that some theatres are feel able to safely open again after having been closed for many weeks and months. Rochester Civic Theatre is one of those, and they've asked me to coach their production of The Syringa Tree by Pamela Guillen. A wonderfully challenging piece for a dialect coach. It's Pamela's recollection of being six years old in 1963, back near Johannesburg in her native South Africa. She created it with Larry Moss as a one-woman show and uh, it's been a huge success ever since it was released. A big challenge for dialect coaches of course because it contains not only Anglo-South African English and Afrikaans English accent but uh, several different African language accents as well. Also and Zulu, and Sutu. Wonderful challenge. One of the most interesting and difficult things of the play is that one of the actors has to speak and sing in Osa. That's X-H-O-S-A, and that is one of the clicks that they use in the Osa language. Talk about that in a minute, but first I thought I'd love to play you uh, Miriam McCaber's click song. Everyone loves that. You may have heard it, may not have heard it, but if you haven't, here's a little bit of Miriam McCaber's recording of the traditional also wedding song, sometimes referred to simply as the click song. In my native village in Johannesburg, there is a song that we always sing when a young girl gets married. It's called the click song by the English because they cannot say Onotwani.
When first listening, you might think that those sounds were made uh, by a percussion instrument, but no, they're all human mouth. There are uh, five click sounds among the languages of the world that are recorded in the International Phonetic Alphabet. These are classed, along with voiced implosives and ejectives, as non-pulmonic consonants. In other words, you don't use lung air, but store up mouth air, or external air, or air disappearing from the outside world back into your lungs. So clicks are made with a little... And uh, there are five of those. And you can go to my uh, International Phonetic Alphabet interactive charts that I created many years ago with Eric Armstrong. And here are the clicks. Uh, one is The first one is bilabial. It's made with the two lips. So you sort of suck the air in as you smack your lips. Ah, 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 ah. Next one is made with, um, it's called dental. Tip of the tongue against the back of the top teeth. Ah, 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 ah. We sometimes use that, a little tut-tutting of disapproval. That's actually a dental click. And then there's a post-alveolar click. Ah, 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 ah. I think you hear that in the, uh, in the click song. That one's made just behind the alveolar ridge. That's the little bump behind your top teeth, if you can find that with your tongue tip. Then there's one that's classified a little further back across the roof of the mouth as a palatoalveolar click. So it's a, a little bit further back along the roof of the mouth. Ah, 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 ah. And the last one is uh, classified as an alveolar lateral. It's kind of the sound we use uh, to uh, encourage a horse to get going. Ah, 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 ah. So I think there are three clicks in Orsa, but there are a total of five used. So the IPA interactive charts tell me. Anyway, thought you'd like a little piece of phonetic arcana. If you're looking for those interactive charts at uh, palmyre.com slash non-pulmonics, you'll be able to play them on Firefox or Explore or perhaps Safari. They rely on Flash technology, which Chrome no longer explores. So, But there's still plenty of of uh, browsers that do support Flash-enabled devices like this. And, of course, I also release these interactive charts as apps, one for iOS and uh, one for Android. You'll find the links to them on my website. I also want to mention my indebtedness to Professor Judy Lee Vivier, who very, very kindly recorded for me all the names and terms from the Syringa tree so that we can ensure pronunciation accuracy. You'll find that recording of all those names and terms on idea. I've made them permanently available to all future actors, directors, dialect coaches of the play. You'll find them on dialectsarchive.com slash play hyphen names hyphen terms. Thanks, Judy Lee. So now it's time for Guess That Accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I was throwing apples down. The dog came. They ran. They left me up in the tree. So I'm pinned in the tree with the dog at the bottom of the tree just barking. And I'm just, I'm just scared to death. And she comes out and she's like, what are you doing up in that tree? I was like, nothing. She said, yeah. 
She said, where the rest of, where the rest of the gang? I said, they left me. She said, girl, get down from that tree. So she, I said, that dog, your dog gonna bite me. And she called the dog and she held the dog so I could get down. If you guessed Virginia, USA, congratulations. It was Ideas Virginia 11, submitted by Ideas Senior Editor, Sarah Nichols. Thanks, Sarah. To hear the whole recording, search for Virginia 11 at dialectsarchive.com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? I must say that first, I, I did like languages, but some, somehow I, I did like German language a lot. And, and in the very beginning, I, I didn't fancy so much English. And I think it was the reason of the teacher. Because then when the teacher changed, somehow the, the one was so exciting. And, and uh, then, then I really wanted to learn more. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. So foreign language Accents. It sounds a little judgmental, doesn't it? You speak in a foreign language accent. Well, of course, when I speak French, I speak it in a foreign language accent because English is foreign to French. So anytime you speak a language that's uh, not your first language, unless you're terrific at it, you may bring in the accent of the features from your first language. And that's precisely what I do in my book. I've got seven foreign language accents in Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen. And I'm actually running a masterclass on that at the moment. We've just had our first class. And if you're interested in ever taking a a Zoom masterclass from me, I'd love to have your company. And uh, you can see a schedule of all those on paulmeyer.com. Email me at paul at paulmeyer.com if you want to be added to the mailing list so that you get word of those special events. So first up, let's talk about the difference between language, dialect, accent, some of these terms. You've heard it quoted more than once on this podcast series. A language is a dialect with an army and navy, conveying, of course, that might is right, and uh, you're just a dialect if you don't have the power, if you don't have the money. But if you've got the power and you've got the money and you've got an army and a navy and a you feel you can feel free to claim language status for the way you speak. I haven't gone in depth to where this originated from. I just looked it up again. And it's usually attributed to Max Weinreich, a specialist in Yiddish linguistics, who expressed it in Yiddish, A Sprach is a dialect mit an army und flot. If I'm getting my Yiddish anywhere close to correct. And he gave it at a speech uh, in back in January of 1945 at a conference devoted to the Yiddish language. Of course, Yiddish languished in the linguistic doldrums for a long time, simply thought to be an inferior dialect of Hebrew, I suppose. It's only recently that Yiddish has achieved language status and is considered a respectable language in which to write literature and so forth. Weinreich says... A teacher at a Bronx high school once appeared among the auditors. He had come to America as a child and the entire time had never heard that Yiddish had a history and could also serve for higher matters. Once after a lecture he approached me and asked, What's the difference between a dialect and a language? I tried to lead him to the right path, but he interrupted me. He said, I know that, but I will give you a better definition. A language is a dialect with an army and a navy. 
From that very time, I made sure to remember that I must convey this wonderful formulation of the social plight of Yiddish to a large audience. So that's a little more context for that oft-quoted remark. Are Spanish and Italian separate languages? Well, I don't think anyone would disagree with that, but there's a case to be made that uh, Spanish and Italian are dialects of the same language and not separate languages. So these distinctions between languages and dialects really break down pretty quickly. Here's another fun little thing which we might devote another podcast to. Dialect chain or dialect continuum. It explodes the idea that most of us, I think, inherit as a child, that once you get to the border of France and Germany, miraculously, a village on one side of the border will speak French and a village on the other side of the border will speak German. But the dialect chain continuum, the dialect continuum, shows us that rather obvious fact that these differences shade into each other. In fact, I'd like to read from what Wikipedia has to say about this. I think they put it very nicely. A dialect continuum is a spread of language varieties spoken across some geographical area such that neighbouring varieties differ only slightly. But the differences accumulate over distance so that widely separated varieties may not be mutually intelligible. It's a kind of a common-sense idea, isn't it? You you imagine that uh, villagers either side of the French-German border would certainly be able to communicate intelligibly with each other. And so those dialects shade into each other. It's a fascinating idea. Accent versus dialect. I have a little pre-chapter in my book that talks about the differences. Of course, the term dialect includes everything about the way speakers of that dialect speak, their their vocabulary, their grammar, and their pronunciation, whereas an accent, as I say, is, is, is one aspect of a dialect. So it's a little bit confusing that uh, I call myself a dialect coach when really I'm concerned only with the pronunciation, which really means that I'm an accent coach. But we have the term dialect coach, and we're sort of stuck with it. Here in North America, dialect coach is, is what the profession is known as. But uh, it's more likely in, in Europe or in, in Britain to be called an accent coach and to refer to teaching accents, no matter whether it's a foreign language accent or English language dialect. So that's another little distinction. I reserve the term. I think it's a useful one, don't you? Certainly, from an actor's point of view, the two jobs are very, very different. If you're doing a foreign language accent, to some extent, you're on your way to native pronunciation and perhaps failing. Your aspiration is to speak that new language of yours uh, as a native, with native pronunciation. But to the extent that you fail, you're speaking the new language in an accent of your old Whereas if you're an English speaker and you're learning um, how English is spoken in South Africa or Australia or New Zealand or in Scotland, then you're dealing with something that's not a mistake, not something that you're on a journey towards perfection with because you're speaking a perfectly acceptable, legitimate and viable dialect. Dialect used to be used pejoratively, 
Oh, she speaks dialect. She just speaks dialect, speaking in her own local patois. Uh, so dialect was used much more pejoratively to privilege the standard pronunciation of the language, but with a greater sense of inclusivity and legitimization of, of diversity. Dialects are now recognized as, as obeying consistent internal rules and uh, just as legitimate as the standard privileged dialect of the language. But actors have got to play both dialect roles and accent roles, and so I find hanging on to those terms kind of interesting and useful. So let's talk about foreign language accents. I was employed as a consultant uh, two or three years ago for a company marketing a board game, which they called Accentuate. And it was a... You drew a card, and then you had to, as quickly as possible, convince the your fellow players of the board game of the accent that uh, you were speaking in. And uh, you got points for how quickly you could convey to the, your fellow competitors your command of that accent. It's a fun game. And uh, I'd already done something like that in my dialect classes. Sometimes on the on the last day we do a, a fun little competitive game like that to see how few words it takes you for the audience to shout out what dialect you're doing. So let's do a little bit of that. So I'm going to use Douglas and Amaroff's marvellous little diagnostic passage that he wrote for Idea, together with Jill McCullough and Barbara Somerville, all those years ago. Wonderful little passage. And all of the Idea subjects get to read that passage. And it's wonderful because it contains all the lexical sets. So... All the sounds of English are represented in a really, really small space. You've heard it quoted on this podcast. It goes, well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily in an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. So if I was to read that out loud in one of my accents, I wonder how few words it would take you before you were able to shout it. Oh, I know what he's doing. He's doing a such-and-such such accent. Well, let's try it. Sarah Berry was a veterinary nurse. If I've done my job well, you'll be able to shout out French right away. Because I've uh, loaded in all of the stereotypical features of a French accent. How about this one? What accent am I speaking now? Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse. If you shouted out German, I've done my job right, because I changed the W to a V, was a veterinary nurse. We get, or nurse, that's typically German, isn't it? How about this one? Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo. Am I doing Russian? Maybe. So you get the point. That's a, a fun little game. But of course, it's, it's, a, it's a game that depends on, on a complete stereotyping of accents. The problem is that the reality doesn't square with the game. Speakers of other languages don't trot out the familiar litany of signature sounds, as I call them, when I teach these accents. They just simply don't do that. As you will know from playing the uh, accent quiz game with us on the podcast, you'll know that real speakers of other languages simply don't do that. Perhaps an immigrant fresh off the boat 
a beginner at the language might evince all of those features, but anyone with any fluency or competence in the language of study isn't going to conveniently and considerately make all of those mistakes so that you can shout out and identify who they are. So let's talk a little more deeply about foreign language accents. If I were to ask you what kinds of sounds do we master first when learning another language, and which are the sounds that take the longest to master? If you're an actor, you really do have to answer that question. In other words, which mistakes are you going to let go first? And which mistakes are you going to be unable to let go of? So that you can depict your character who speaks a foreign language accent in a way that conforms to real life experience. The thought I have at this point is that those sounds that are so conspicuously different from the inventory of sounds in our own first language are the ones that we notice first and therefore might be the ones that we have a go at first. So when I learned French all those years ago, I was taught that the French make their R with a R, a uvular trill. Well, that was very exotic to me, so I, I really wouldn't rest until I could do a uvular trill. R, the uvula is that little piece of tissue hanging down at the back of your throat. And R, if you can make that oscillate back and forth, you're doing a uvular trill. Well, the problem is that French speakers rarely take the time to, to sound their R's in that way, even though English schoolboys were taught that that was the, the way you did a French R. It's much more likely to be a ch. I live in Paris, which is not a, r, a trill, but a ch. It's a fricative in the, in the language of phonetics. But nevertheless, the point holds that those sounds that are different from our own first language inventory of sounds are the ones that we will try first because we've noticed them, and they're the ones that the textbooks will teach us first. But the subtle mistakes, those are the ones that will linger longest. The trouble is many, many actors actually do the reverse. It's a, it's a dirty little secret. That because they are less skilled at the subtle mistakes, they don't do them in the first place. They hang on to the gross mispronunciations at the expense of the subtle mispronunciations. So the exact reverse of what happens in real life, which is perhaps why we can often instinctively tell when an actor is native to the dialect they're using, native to the accent they're using in the play or film. So that's maybe why we can actually tell, maybe subconsciously, instinctively, when we're listening to an actor in a film or play, speaking an accent, we're able to say, oh yes, it's an actor doing it, doing it quite well, perhaps, versus, ah, they hired someone with that accent. You can usually tell the difference. Sometimes we're fooled, and that's marvellous when an actor does fool us like that. But that's, that's what I'm going to be challenging my actors in my master class this month with. How to fool. How to fool the audience into believing that you have been hired at great expense from the country where that accent might be originating from. One of the challenges I'm going to be bringing up this month in my masterclass is to ask the question, what do all foreign language accents of English have in common? I'll, and I'll pose that question to you. What do you think they all have in common, despite the differences 
that you need to employ when you're playing the, the accent quiz game. Obviously, many of them will have the same phonetic mistakes in, in common. French and German, for example, share the essentially uvula trill. So both those accents feature R. And both French and German have difficulty with our English th and the, the two th sounds that we have, the voiced and the unvoiced. And that's common across a whole range of languages. Many, many languages don't have that subtle distinction that we have in English between between the goose and put lexical sets. Many languages don't need to phonologically discriminate between look and look, soot and suit. And so speakers of that language, when approaching English, will be likely to, to be unable to distinguish between look and look, soot and suit. Similarly, English is one of rather few languages that distinguish between i and e, as we have in the kit and fleece lexical sets, those families of words that share those sounds. So if you don't have that distinction in the in the phonology of your own first languages, then saying kit as opposed to keet is going to be a little hard for you to hear in the first place and to learn how to do. So one of my big jobs as a so-called accent reduction coach is to coach people into making those, into hearing and employing those small distinctions. So in those last two lexical sets, the difference between ship and sheep is inaudible to some speakers of other languages and therefore difficult to do when approaching English. It's exactly the same if I were to approach uh, any other language in the world. There would be subtle distinctions, shades of value, two vowels that have no phonological distinction in English. So I will be unable to hear and reproduce those differences. Those are the subtle things I was thinking about. But what do they all have in common? I think perhaps top of my list is is what I would call one word at a timeness. Certainly when I was learning French and my little bit of Russian and uh, and Latin, you know, you see the words on the page, you're learning it from a book, you've got a textbook, and there's the, you're learning the language, and you're putting all those words together, recognizing them and producing them one word at a time. You're not right, quite ready for connected speech. So you're trying a little too hard to get every word right. So at least beginners in a language often approach English in that fashion. There's a little bit of a sense that they're thinking one word at a time. And that's reinforced by the many, many languages, not not universally so, that there's a difference in the rhythm between English and many, many other languages. We call English a stress-timed language versus a syllable-timed language. I spoke about that with David Crystal in another podcast, I believe. Those distinctions break down after a while and they sort of morph into each other. But at the either end of the continuum, we do have stress-timed versus syllable-timed. I must tell you that I'm in a very good mood today. I must tell you that I'm in a very good mood today. So I'm really smushing those little less important words together and making them take almost as much time as the uh, the big fat stressed words. I must tell you that I'm in a I must tell you that I'm in a very good mood today. I might take as much time on mood 
as I did for Australia that I'm in. So that's a really dramatic example of a stress-timed way of speaking. But many, many languages are syllable-timed. So might say, I must tell you that I am in a very good mood today. We appreciate that as, as spending about as much time on any syllable or word as any other. They seem of equal value to us. And often speakers of syllable-timed languages when approaching English, the very hardest thing they have to do is to acquire that stress-timed rhythm. So that sort of goes together with one word and at a timeness, as it were. One other difficulty that many, if not most, languages encounter when learning English is to encounter the most common vowel of English. What do you think is the most common vowel, the most often used? Well, it's represented by no letter at all. It's called a schwa, S-C-H-W-A, schwa. It's the little uh vowel. So because it doesn't have a letter equivalent, it's invisible. So in the word animal, we have three vowels, but two of them are schwa's. Animal. The last two are uh, animal. Speakers of other languages, because the schwa is unrepresented by a letter, will bring pure vowels to each of those three. So animal. Animal. And you could do it for any polysyllabic word. Professor has two schwa's. The first and the last. Professor. So... It's not professor, professor, participation, two schwas, maybe three. But spoken with no schwas, participation, participation, participation. Is there participation, artificiality, artificiality. And we've got two or three schwas there, unstressed syllables. Arti, arti. Artifici artificiality, artificiality might be how a foreign language speaker might approach that word at first before they've gotten the habit of those schwas. Do you know about strong and weak forms? Did you know that we had them in English? I'm sure you do know that instinctively because you draw the distinction between them. If you said I was there, you would use a schwa in the was. I was I was there, but in I was there, was there is the strong form. So was and was, was and was, very easy idea. But it doesn't come instinctively to people learning English in the early days. Going back to the one word at a timeness, someone who's a native idiomatic speaker of any language knows when to slur, when to contract, when to use contractions. And it's amazing no matter what accent someone comes to me saying they want to reduce it or eliminate it or get trained in the American or the British accent, universally, no matter what first language they come from, they don't slur, compact and contract nearly enough. My habitual advice is be lazy. And it's counterintuitive. You know, you, you speak in an accent, you want to be clear, you want to speak clearly, and so you think that if you pronounce each word giving its full value, that you will then be more intelligible. And it's astonishing to realize that that actually makes it more difficult to understand. Take a sentence like, uh, I always thought I was going to be a brilliant quantum physicist. 
I always thought I was going to be a brilliant quantum physicist. Going back to that stress-timed language versus syllable-timed, it's amazing that you could smush so many words together. I always thought I was going to be, I always thought I was going to be the foreign language accent speaker who, when they hear me suggest that they have to smush those words together quite so dramatically for extra clarity, think I'm off my head. So it's counterintuitive for them. If I did that amount of slurring but slowed it down so that you could hear it, listen. I was thought I was going to be a... I was thought I was going to be a... So many, many dropped consonants. So the, the last thing we want to hear from someone trying desperately to learn our language, to learn English, I always thought I was going to be a... We need that slurring for clarity. I always thought I was going to be a... Because the truth is we don't comprehend language one word at a time. We, we appreciate language and comprehend language at the phrase level. So tucked into our subconscious somewhere, we, we have I always thought as a familiar phrase. And we're very happy with I always thought, always thought. Similarly, I was going to be a lives in some cortical cave as is going to be a, as going to be a, as going to be a. So when we hear that rhythm and that tune from someone with that phrase, bingo, said he, clicking. We identify the phrase. But I was going to be a is actually more difficult, I would postulate, to understand. Then we get to the predicate of the sentence, or the most important words, brilliant quantum physicist. You might take time on that. Don't want to slur your way through the operative words. So that's a little taste of what you might get if you were to join my next Approaching Foreign Language Accents Masterclass. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me, Paul Meyer. The clip I played was used under the Copyright Doctrine of Fair Use. The traditional click song is copyright Miriam Makeba. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at DialectPaul. My guest in September will be Jerome Butler, distinguished fellow dialect coach and teacher. I'm really looking forward to that. So join me next time on In a Manner of Speaking.